And as we jump in here today, uh, sorry, I had to record. People have been asking for these recorded, so uh, why, I do not know. Um, you can go look up Charles Stanley's sermons, and you can listen to those, and they will be better than this. Um, as we jump into the Scripture today, we are in the book of Judges. The book of Judges. As we are going through our Bible uh, survey, we've made it now through several books of the Old Testament. I say several, there's like just a, just a handful, but uh, we are looking into the book of Judges today. I am very excited about this one. I was talking to Miss Jeannie Morris after uh, last week, and she said she's really excited about Judges because Judges is a fun place in the Bible. Uh, whenever I was a student pastor, I used to love going to the book of Judges because the stories are insane. They are insane. I did a series one time called Insane Accounts in the Bible, and my goal was that uh, students would fall in love with God's Word and see something that wasn't in there or that they, did, or they didn't know was in there and be kind of mind-blown, right? Uh, and the reason we had done it, it was uh, I did that series right after one of the Marvel movies came out or some superhero movie, I don't remember what it was, and all these students were buzzing about it. Man, this was the craziest thing ever. And I was like, you think that's crazy? Let me tell you about a time a lady took a tent peg and drove it through a guy into the ground. They were like, what movie's that? And I'm like... Judges. That's what movie it is. It's crazy. And they're like, nah. I was like, listen, there was this really fat king, and this guy took a knife and stabbed him. And the knife went all the way through his belly. He couldn't even get the knife out. And they're like, what movie is that? Judges. Like, it's awesome. So I, I began to think, man, there's so much just wild stories in this book. And I used to love to dive in and, and see those stories and read those stories and explain those stories and give us spiritual meaning and depth out of those stories. But I began to, as I've grown in my study of God's Word, work through these surveys and kind of seeing the full picture here, right? And kind of getting an idea of why it's in there. Why, you know, why is this book in the Bible? What is it doing for us? What is it doing? How does it exemplify God? How does it show His character and His attributes? And then how can I grow and learn from this book in the Bible? And so as I look at this one, the book of Judges, uh, I have titled um, The Cycle of Forsaking. That's what I've titled kind of this each week. I try to give some type of title. You know, if, we, if you were here last week, the book of Joshua, uh, we, I called that one Victory After Victory. Um, and it was just this moments of taking possession of the promised land. So, so far... We have seen, just to give you a little catch-up, we have seen uh, the beginning, we've seen the creation, we've seen the patriarchs, the families that God instituted and how He was working through families. We then saw how the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. We then saw in Exodus how Moses was raised up and led the people out of Egypt. We then saw how they were in the wilderness and they roamed around. Right Now there was a lot of things happened. We know that they were at the base of Mount Sinai, for the beginning of their, um, their, their journey through the wilderness, they ended up walking around in circles for 40 years until an entire generation dies off. We see the second generation raising up at the, at the edge of the Jordan River, and we see that Joshua takes over at that point. Um, this group is, is then consecrated to the Lord. They are reminded of the law. They are refreshed in the law. And these, uh, these young men and women grew up, and they were ready to go and take the promised land. They were ready to go. So they crossed the river of death into the promised land. And when that happened, they went in, and last week we talked about, through the book of Joshua, this is, it was the, the conquering and the taking over of the land. But we saw a couple of faults in Joshua's life. One of those faults being... Uh, God said, I want you to wipe away all these people that are in this land. It's yours to possess, and I don't want them to corrupt you. Well, Israel went in and did not wipe away every single one of the inhabitants. So uh, the Canaanites were still there, and we're going to find in the book of Judges where that will come back and bite them. Uh, it will come back and be a problem because they didn't obey God fully, and uh, partial obedience is disobedience. That's, that's what we need to hear today. Partial obedience is... Delayed obedience is defiance. It's, it's not obedience. You say, well, I'll, do, I'll obey. Just give me another couple of weeks and then I'll do it. It's like, if God told you now, do it now. Don't wait. I heard a great quote uh, that has been dangerous almost in my life. But the quote was, when God tells you something, you don't have to get anybody else's approval. 
You just don't. I, I began to think about it, and I thought, well, Lord, but what if I'm leading something? What if I'm going about something? What if I'm going, what if I'm supposed to do something? How, aren't I supposed to get my family's approval before I go and make this adjustment, before I make this shift, before I do this thing? And I keep going back to Joshua and Caleb as they were spies going into the land, and, got, and they said, let's go. It's time to go. God said it. It's ours. Then what happens? They were looking for the approval of other people. The, the, the approval didn't go through, and so they, they wandered around for 40 years. When God tells you something, you don't have to get anybody else's approval. I'm just, I'm here to say it. Listen, I, I, you, the most responsible thing you can do in your life is obey the Lord. That's the most responsible thing you can do. It may look irresponsible. Your actions may look irresponsible to everyone else. This brings me back to when I was here as the youth pastor several years ago. Um, we, had, uh, we, were, we were early on in ministry. We had very little resources. My wife was pregnant. We had our firstborn, and then our second one was on the way. And I remember we had, uh, I was working like four jobs. I don't know if anybody remembers that season at all in my life, but I was here working uh, part-time here, working part-time at two or three other places. I was doing like photography on the weekends when I could. And I mean, it was just, it was wild running all over the place. And I got to the point where I was here. And one night we were going through the Experiencing God Bible study. And I loved that study and I hated that study, right? Because that study was telling me to do things that seemed extreme, Okay, so there was a moment when I was here one night and God said, I want you to empty out your bank account and give it to the church. Now, before everybody says, wow, how much money? It was like $72. Okay, I mean, it was $72. I remember I was like, I had $72. I wasn't getting paid for the three days. This was going to last us. And I had a pregnant wife at home. All right, this was a, this looked irresponsible, right? It looked irresponsible. But I know that in that moment I had to make a decision. Was it going to, God spoke. Do I need to call my wife and get approval? Most marriage counselors would say, absolutely you do, right? You absolutely do. I was dumb and, and, and I guess, I don't know, naive or something, but I just trusted the Lord for what he, for what he said. That's what I did. Emptied out the bank account, that church, man, you, you probably go back in the records to see that big spike that week. You know what I'm saying? That like extra $72 in there. I remember when I did that, I, I was driving home. My gas, by the time I got here, I was driving this little Pontiac Sunfire. And that, uh, you've probably seen it driving around. It was ended up in Johnny's uh, world, and he was driving it for a while. Um, this little car. And I remember that it was almost empty. The gas tank was almost empty when I got here. And I, I live in Knoxville. And so I was like, okay, I really need to get gas. I really need. By the, by the time this was all said and done, God had provided in the next three days gift cards to, um, and all of it was anonymous. I, I, I got gift cards to um, uh, grocery stores. I got gas cards. The right next to, right next door to the place I was working in in Knoxville, Lifeway. Right next door, the um, the sports clips or whatever it was was celebrating a year being open. So they were giving out free hot dogs to everybody. And by the time I was leaving work. They said, hey, we got all these extra hot dogs. Do you want to take them? And I was like, yes. I go home and my wife's like, what's for dinner tonight? I'm like, how do you feel about hot dogs? I think that's a good thing. You know, let's do that. So we ate hot dogs for like three weeks. But through that, it was, I realized something. In that moment, I want, I look back on that moment. And it was one of the greatest, no kidding, one of the greatest experiences in my life. One of the greatest. Because it was completely out of my control like a hundred percent out of my control. I had no control over it at all. God said, I want you to do this. Now, I look back on that moment and I ask myself the question, if I was not obedient, would any of that other stuff have happened? Now, I'm not trying, I, and I try my best not to over-spiritualize things. I try my best not to say, oh, well, you know, be mystical or any of that kind of stuff. I believe that God was wanting to show me his power and his provision and so he asked for me to be obedient in something when it didn't make sense. When I could not, I could not rationalize, do I have any money anywhere else, <laughs> right? Is there anything, can I empty the change tray in my car? That's a $3, okay? And then God was like, I want that too. I'm like, okay, here's this extra. So as I'm walking through that, I'm realizing something. Obedience is always the best path, always. So brings us into the book of Judges. If we think about this, 
Um, you know, I like, to th- I like to do a little contrast, if you've been here uh, through this study, I like to look at the book before and the book after and kind of give you a little contrast in them. The book of Joshua was kind of ringing out with these heavenly sounds, these heavenly notes, right? Because it was talking about the promised land and all of these things that God had provided for them already. And so you almost can hear heavenly notes through it. Judges, on the other hand, is uh, ringing out with earthly sounds. It's earthly notes through the book of Judges. Um, it's what happens basically when man is left to his own means, right? This is when man is on his own. Uh, Joshua was victory after victory, and Judges is defeat after defeat. Um, the cycle through Judges is primarily rebel, punishment, repent, and restore. That's, that's, that's Joshua. If you, if you go to judge, Judges and you say, what's the cycle that happens in the book of Judges? I can tell you that it is rebel, punishment, repent, and restore. That is the cycle. And what's crazy is that cycle happens six or seven times in the book of Judges. Like you would think, come on, guys, like you got to figure this one out by now. Like you, every time you've rebelled, you got punished. And every time you got punished, you ended up, uh, re- you ended up repenting. I'm sorry, God, can you, can you send help? And then God would restore you. And then what would happen next? You would rebel again. What? This doesn't make any sense. And here's the thing, too. As we look through this book, there's a lot of... Um, I wanted to do like a timeline study on this today, and God didn't really let me, let me study that direction. But in the timeline of this, some of these times of peace was like 40 years. Okay, I can almost get that. I'm 40 years old. So if you look back at 1982, most of us don't remember what 1982 was like, right? And so we forget what happened 40 years ago, so we're, we're, we're more inclined to make the mistakes from 40 years ago, right? And things change in 40 years, right? The 40 years ago, the world was a different place. The, my, my community was a different place. I remember growing up, and I would get on my bicycle and take off and not come back home till late that night, and my mom wasn't even worried about it. I can't let my kids go in the yard without making sure that I got trackers on them. You know, I got GPSs on all my kids. I'm like, I got to know exactly where they are all the time. The world is different, right? And so if we're not careful, what we do is we forget what it was like and we forget the guardrails we put in place 40 years ago and the way God delivered us 40 years ago. This is the reason I journal. The reason I journal things every day, I try my best to get some type of journal out, some type of here's what happened today in my life. Because I'm able to remember better, number one. If I don't write it down, good chance I'm, re- I'm forgetting it. I, I write it down. Here's what God did in my life in this season. Two days ago, I found one of my journal entries from a really, really hard day in 2016. I mean, it was maybe one of the hardest days up to that point in my life. And I, I began to read, and, and this, all these emotions came back, right? And all these, I was like, oh, Oh, that was bad. Oh, man, that was... How did I ever make it through this? Then I just read a couple of days later in the journal, right? Oh, God brought me through it. God brought me through it. So I'm not going to be so dumb as to do this thing again, right? I'm not going to make the same mistake I did. And and it wasn't even like crazy bad mistake. It was a little bit of uh, just a, a, a touch of disobedience can cause major ramifications in our life because delayed obedience, partial obedience is still disobedience. It's still not what God wants for us. So in this, in this text, I don't want us to think, oh, well, this, this cycle just makes them look like complete fools because it's 40 years, 40 years goes by. That's a lifetime. Now, there's some judges that's only like eight years. Now, those, I, I blame those guys a little bit more, right? <laughs> you shouldn't have rebelled after eight years of this. I mean, eight years ago, I, my, I, it's, I remember eight years ago, right? I can remember two years, four years ago. Some of the judges' seasons were very short. Those, I, I don't understand how they got so far so fast. But then I remember, it's a slippery slope once you get into sin. And you can, you can slip real quickly if you're not careful. So as I look through this book, um, it gives us these, uh, this, so the timeline matters. So, and, and I know that in the book of Acts chapter 13, in Stephen's great sermon, he mentions the judges. And he mentions the season of the judges up until Samuel is probably about 450 years. So it's a pretty good amount of time that this book spans and this book covers. The book of Ruth, which we'll look at next week, 
is really happening at the same time as the book of Judges. And so I almost wanted to do them together today, but I thought really Ruth has a whole separate storyline that we need to see. So, um, but if you look through Judges and Ruth, they're, they're happening in the same season um, uh, for when this is going on. And, and it gives us a little better picture of kind of the whole, this is 450 years. Now I want you to think, 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, so think, think about, I know we hear that a lot at Christmas time, right? God had closed his mouth in the book of Malachi, and then 400 years. Think about those generations that came and went without a new fresh word from God. This is the book of Judges lasted about that same time, 450 years. That's older than our country. Think about that. That's all, there's nothing in this country that you will see that's more than 400 years old. There's just not. I mean, minus the mountains or something, but like, there's no physical structure that's been built that we can see that's been there for 450 years. This is a long, long period of time where the history is just cycle after cycle after cycle. So what I want to see today, I want, I want to break this up into three uh, sections in this book of Joshua. The first section uh, we're going to look at is Israel in combat. This is Israel in combat. I've, I've tried to make all these start with the letter C, like a good preacher. Um, I had to stretch a little bit, but it's okay. Um, so this is the first one, though, we're going to talk about Israel in combat, or the battles, the wars that Israel had to face. And that's just the first chapter and a half. Okay, that's the first section. The second section is, is much longer. Um, it's, it's from chapter 2 to chapter 16 or so. Um, and that is uh, Israel in chaos. Israel in chaos. And this is... Um, kind of a catastrophic issue that goes on in these chapters. And this is where the judges are, right? This is the cycle. And if you think about the cycles that are happening, it is chaotic. I, as I read through this book, as I read through this preparing for today, I kept thinking, this is exhausting. Like, this is exhausting. Not the fact that I had to read it, but the fact that, like, the story, it's, it's, Oh, this is great, this is great. Boom, terrible, awful. Oh, this is great, this is great. Boom, terrible, awful. Like, it's this constant cycle that, that's chaotic. I could not imagine my life looking like that. You know what I mean? Like, these constant highs and lows. And then God was like, take a look at your life, man. It is that. Your life is chaos. This is how you live. This is how the world lives. So we're going to look at that section as chaos. And in the last section of the book of Judges, we're going to look at it as Israel in corruption. Uh, Israel in corruption. And the way this one ends is, uh, is kind of a gut-wrencher. It's kind of a heart, uh, heart, heart piercer. So uh, just preparing you for that. So we're going to jump in. In the book of Judges, the first chapter and a half or so, uh, we see a promise of victory and then a promise. And then, then um, the victory is kind of incomplete. So in this first chapter, you, you read through it. And it's, a, it's a lot of a summary or an overview of what you're about to experience. Because it says, there's gonna, we're going to go in and we're going to have some, some, some battles. And we're going to have this initial victory and it's going to be awesome. We're going to celebrate. And then you're going to see the victory's incomplete. It's because Israel didn't do exactly what God said to do. They would go in to fight a, a, a people. God would say, wipe them out, right? And they would go in and not wipe them out. They would just go in, flex their muscle. They would win. But it was an incomplete win. I want, I want you to think about this spiritually today. You face battles in your life, right? I look at these as the people of Israel are in the place that God has called them to be. But there are people there that shouldn't be there now. God says, this is my people, this is my land, this is my place. So get out everything that doesn't look like me. Get out everything that doesn't align with me. So in our lives, here's what God does. He says, in your life, now that I've called you through the river of death, through the Jordan River into this new world that I've given you, this new life, this resurrected life. Now I want you to demolish everything that doesn't align with me. That's what God does in our life spiritually. And here's what we do. We first, we get saved. We get, you know, we come to church on Sunday. We do our thing. And then each week or each time that we experience God, we battle a little bit. But we don't completely demolish the enemy. We don't completely demolish that temptation in us. We don't completely demolish that thing that God said, get out of your life. We leave just a little bit in. And when we leave just a little bit in, we think we've got a victory. But truth is, it's incomplete. And because that incomplete victory, we will see some major problems that come up. As we see this opening up, 
uh, you'll see this command and this continued disobedience to not follow all the way through. It's hard to finish things. It just is. For me, it's really easy to start something. Really easy. I love starting new projects. You can go to my house right now and you can see a house full of unfinished projects. That's what you can see. And, and you can, if you, don't, Elizabeth, if you don't want to drive all the way to my house, just text my wife. Hey, does your husband finish all of his projects? And she will give you a list of things that I have not finished. And I mean, some of, it, some of it's ridiculous things. Some of it is honestly like not putting a plate cover over a, a, a light switch that I, we, we put a new light switch in because we wanted it to look pretty and white and match the whole thing. But I forgot to put the light switch on, the, the cover on. And that's a 30 second fix. 30 seconds, but I gotta, I gotta, that's gotta go get the drill, gotta get the screwdriver, I gotta make sure the plate, and I gotta get, it's, I, it, finishing things is just hard, right? Starting it is easy, because starting it is fun. Finishing it feels like labor. Finishing it feels like work. And so this is the way as Israel goes in and their battles and their wars are being fought, they get to the point where they almost complete it, they almost finish it, but they just don't put the covers on the light switches anymore. They just, they just kind of say, we've made it far enough. The one fear I have about churches, as I've been in churches, I, have, I was telling somebody the other day, I've worked, get this, how weird is this? You, you've heard pe- preachers say the church is not a country club, right? In my life, my two big career paths, I worked at two country clubs and I've worked at, at churches. Like, it's, I've seen these worlds, and there's a lot of overlap, honestly. But as I've, as I've looked at it, my fear is this. We settle for good enough. In our own spiritual life, Israel settled for good enough. They said, we've won this victory. We can count it as a win. Whew, that's good enough. And now we see, as it goes into the next few chapters, it... it and, and I, I think even the way that the, the outline I've laid this out in these sections. So we see first Israel in combat. We can replace Israel with us. Now, this, I'm not saying that, that's, that you can do that biblically here in this moment. I'm just saying for our point today. Israel in, in combat. There are days we're in combat. When we don't fulfill our mission and complete the, the, the mission, and we don't complete the battles, the next thing that happens in the book of Judges is Israel in chaos. When we are incomplete in our victories, we will end up in chaos every time. Every time. That's the way it will work. So whenever we deal with things as a church family, on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, on Wednesday mornings, whenever we are together and we are expecting and asking God to do a move and we begin our journey, we see victory, 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 yay, yay, yay. But the truth is we, if we don't stick it out long enough to truly have a complete victory. We don't really get all the way out, get all of the, the, the leaven out of the loaf. You know what I'm saying? Is that making some sense? And so because of that, we end up in chaos because that stuff begins to spread. So we look as the next, uh, the next uh, couple of sections happen in chapter 2, and we begin to see that the Lord raises up these judges. And in, in chapter 2, it talks about Israel's disobedience, the death of of uh, Joshua, and then it begins to talk about the judges that are coming and the judges that are here. It's a little bit of a summary, overview of what's about to come. And then chapters 3 through 16 are the list of judges and the storylines. I love the book of Judges for several reasons. As this is kind of broken up in these time slots, in these moments, you can take each of these moments and learn something. You can take each of these judges and learn something, each of these people. God uses people. We talked in the early uh, sections of the Pentateuch in, in the book of Genesis and in Exodus, we see God uses names. He named a lot of things. He uses people, and people have names. Same thing here in the book of Judges. Each of the judges' names means something. So we can learn something from each of those. Now, I'm not going to jump into each judge, but I, I do want you to see and understand. Like When you go and study this and read this on your own, look up what all the names mean and how they are, how they are beneficial to our understanding of the Scripture and their storylines. Uh, for instance, the first judge that shows up in the Scripture is the, ju- is the judge Othniel. Othniel is, um, I also think each of the judges we can learn, they're not usual, they're not the usual suspects of great superheroes, right? I, when I was um, a teenager, one of my youth minister guys told me, he said, he said, when I read the book of Judges, it's like superheroes of the faith. These guys are just awesome. 
And I remember that sticking out in my mind and as a teenager. Well, the more I've read them, these guys are actually not, not superheroes. These guys are like oddballs. They, they don't really fit. They don't, there's something a little bit weird about them, which makes me happy because there's a lot of things weird about me, right? There's a lot of things odd about me. I was told growing up I was different from everybody else, and I thought that was great. Apparently, they weren't saying that as a compliment, right? They were, you, are, you are not taking things seriously enough. You are not doing this. You're not. I was a little bit odd. These judges were a little bit odd. Othniel, in fact, and this is what's odd about him, he was a younger brother. There's no way a younger brother should be the, the, the one that God uses to do something. It was always the older brother. It was always the oldest of the sons that got the power and got the authority and got all this. And, and that's the way it is even today. I mean, look at me and my younger brother. My younger brother's useless, right? I'm the, I'm the, I'm the guy at the house, you know? I'm the man that says... And as we look through this, it's very odd that God would use a younger brother to start this out. It's just, it's just odd. Othniel was a younger brother. His name means Lion of God. That's pretty cool. I like that Lion of God. That's a, that's a good name. If I had to, to pick my name, I, would, I don't know if I'd go by Othniel, but Lion of God, that's what it means. Um, this is where, uh, in this season, the, uh, the Mesopotamians actually were the ones that were uh, oppressing Israel. And the reason that I wanted to mention that is because... The Mesopotamians, that's, Mesopotamians, that's the, the land that Abram came from. So Abram came out of the land, and, and that's where idolatry truly began. So, so here's what we know. Idolatry begins in the Scripture. We see idolatry the first time in the land of Mesopotamia. And that's why God called Abram out of that, right? God said, Abram, I've got something beautiful for you. I've got chills because I know where I'm going with this. They said, Abraham, I want you to come out of this, get out of idolatry, follow me, and I'm going to let you walk. And everywhere you walk, I'm going to give you and the people that are following after the people, your nation that I'm going to create after you, the people, the covenant that God made with Abram was like, I'm going to get you out of idolatry, and I'm going to take you to a land that's amazing and awesome. Now... The children of Israel, fast forward, now they are in the land that God gave them, that he told Abram, and where do we find them? In the very beginning of the book of Judges, they're in idolatry, where this all started. That's, so those people, the idolatrous people, are the ones that are oppressing uh, Israel. And so now, in this moment, Israel's found themselves in the throes of idolatry again, and so here they are. Anytime in the Bible, there's three places primarily. You've heard me say Egypt. Anytime you see, you see Scripture, it's typically they went down to Egypt. It was a sign of disobedience. Um, Assyria was another place that was a sign of, of a problem or a defiant enemy of God, as well as Mesopotamia. These three locations all had a different context. Okay, I'm going to give you just a... This is a a lot today, and I know, but it's, it's going to be good, I promise. So if Egypt was all about the culture of the world, uh, Assyria was all about the cruelty. Assyria was all about how they punished people, how they did things. I mean, they would just like rip people apart. It was awful and ugly and terrible. Assyria was about the cruelty of the world, and Mesopotamia was really about its cults and really about the idolatry that kept them away. So anytime you see those three places in Scripture, a lot of times it has to do with those themes. So if, they, if somebody is down in Egypt, like when Joseph went to, uh, whenever Abraham went down to Egypt, he was in disobedience and the culture of the world, right? Whenever Israel was called out of Egypt, then all the laws were put in place to get Egypt out of them, right? The culture of the world out of them. Then in, in places in the scripture, it talks about Assyria, we'll see about the cruelty of the world. Mesopotamia, about the idols and the cults that it brings. And so that's just a couple of uh, extra pieces of of Bible, uh, uh, I don't know, study for you. But um, after Othniel, there was peace for 40 years. So this first first judge gives 40 years of peace. Uh, I do think it's it's interesting how certain things happen in like 40-year spans. There's a lot to that, but we're moving on. And then the next judge we see in chapter 3 is the judge Ehud. Ehud is a left-handed man. God's not going to use a left-handed man. That's not going to happen. The right hand is the strong hand. Again, he was a little bit odd. What's even more odd is he's a Benjamite. So he's of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. So the... So, 
So Ehud, this guy who was the son, he was in the tribe of the son of the right hand, was a left-handed guy. And God's like, that's the one I want to use. Why? Because he is left-handed. Like, that's, 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 like, he has no other priors. Like, he's not some great hero warrior. From, he's from the tribe of the right hand, and he's left-handed. I don't, God's just got a sense of humor sometimes. He's like, I'm going to use this left-handed guy because nobody's going to expect the way I'm going to do this. So uh, it's, it's very good to know that so far, Othniel, the first judge, called the Lion of God, this, this lion, points us to the Word of God and, and the, the Word of God with him, uh, the lion roars and how that works. Ehud, the son of his, the, the left-handed man, um, he took the uh, sword. Now we know Ehud's story is really kind of cool. He takes this little sword, this, this uh, dagger thing, this uh, um, uh, little small sword, and it's got two edges on it, and it's very important to know that. And he takes this, he attaches it to the thigh of his right leg because he's left-handed, right? And this is the way he's able to go in and he kills King Eglon. Eglon is the overly fat man. Scripture says it, not me. He is so fat that he is um, uh, this picture of just the world's filth. He is just the picture of, of indulgence and all, all, of, all of what is going on. Israel's caught themselves in indulgence and in the worldly acts of, of the world. And so now, what does Ehud do? He takes this sword and stabs the flesh of the filthy man. And so much so, he stabs him, and the, the sword goes all the way into Eglon, and he can't even get the sword out. Like, that's gross and crazy. Like, this is, if this was in a movie, it'd be rated R for sure. I mean, there's no question. Even if they, like, don't show it all. This is nasty and terrible. And here's what I have learned out of this survey as I go through this. Do you know what God wants us to do with the flesh? He wants us to take the sword of the Spirit, the sword of God's Word, and, and, and destroy our flesh. That's what He wants us to do. And how do we do that? We put this thing all the way into our lives, and therefore, all the way. Like, we're not talking a little bit, halfway. The one thing I love about these judges is, this Ehud doesn't, doesn't uh, go up to Eglon and not finish the task. He doesn't go do a partial victory here. He doesn't walk up and just cut him up real good. He goes up and takes the sword, this two-edged sword, stabs it all the way into the flesh of this guy until he is dead. You know what God wants us to do with our flesh? He wants us to take his word, the two-edged sword of his word, and destroy our flesh. That's what he wants us to do. That's God's plan for us. It's convicting power, drive it into the very seat of our carnality and destroy our flesh. That's what God wants us to do with it. Uh, great little lesson from Ehud. Then, then we see um, as they, uh, Israel then does again evil in the sight of the Lord. Next thing you know, this guy comes up, Shamgar, one verse of scripture. Um, I, I, there is a, uh, this is a, this is a tough one because there's one verse, right? We see there's a couple other times Shamgar is mentioned, but this is the verse where it talks about Shamgar being the judge. And what does Shamgar do? He kills 600 Philistines. So what was Shamgar's great, awesome superpower? Well, he had a stick. That's what he had. He had an ox goad. An ox goad is about an eight-foot, nine-foot pole uh, with a, a metal tip on the end of it, kind of a, a, to jab, to poke an ox. Okay, He's buying an oxen, and he, he pokes it and makes it go. So God's like, perfect, guy with a stick. We're in. We're ready to go. Shamgar goes and kills 600 Philistines. And uh, the Philistines are, uh, they, they're known in the scripture for uh, their forceful fighting. Um, they're, they're known for their, their intense, um, uh, just, just com combativeness. Like, anytime you see the Philistines, it's just, they just seem to fight. They want to fight. Their answer is, come down here and we're going to duke this out, right? You remember a couple, of, a couple of years later after this, you'll know that David fights a big Philistine, right? He takes him and fights him. Now, the Philistine has a sword, that's what the Philistine has. He's ready to kill David with a sword. And David says, I'm not going to fight the same, I'm not going to fight this battle the way you fight it. I'm going to fight it the way God's given me the power and strength to fight it. And so he takes his sling, right? 
So we see that Philistines are always in battle with, with, with Israel. They're always oppressing because of force. And so God responded by giving Shamgar a stick. Awesome. Incredible. God using ways uh, to do things just amazing. The next, uh, the next judges we see, um, this is where um, the, the story is, takes a turn. Uh, we see the first time God using this woman, this female, as the deliverer. Uh, and so we see uh, Barak, Barak, and he is there. Barak is there, and um, he is nervous. He's a coward. And we see Deborah, this wonderful, incredible woman of grace, who is there, who is um, encouraging uh, Barak to to do the right thing. She's encouraging him. She's she's lifting him up. He's scared. He doesn't want to go do this. He doesn't want to deliver the people. He is. Uh, he wants them delivered, but he wants somebody else to do it. And this, this woman, uh, Deborah, is saying, I, we can do this, you can do this, make this happen, man up, let's go, let's make this happen. Um, the oppressor this time was not the Philistines, it wasn't the Mesopotamians, it was now the Canaanites. And I, I think this is a very interesting point because the Canaanites were supposed to be completely destroyed, right? Why are they here? Why is this going on? Now they are oppressing Israel. Um, when again, when God tells you to get rid of something, just do it completely. Don't just because you beat it in a battle today. If you've left a remnant, that remnant's going to come back and oppress you. That's what's going to happen. It's going to come back and and issue, be an issue in your life. Um, this this great battle was one of the really cool, insane accounts as well. You know, you've got uh, uh, Ehud who stabs the fat guy. You've got uh, Shamgar who takes a big stick and he's slaying Philistines. I don't know how that looked. I, I, in my mind, it looks like a movie where he's like swinging it around his head and he's like knocking people off. I don't know. I'm not sure if he was just walking up individually and stabbing them. Don't know. Um, this one gives us a little more uh, battle scene that takes place. So the Canaanites were the ones, again, we were supposed to have completely destroyed. And here's something important to know. Do you remember when God said, I'm going to give you this land and you're going to drink from wells you didn't dig? You're going to live in houses you didn't build? You're going to, you're going to live in a place that, that's a fortified city that you didn't have to fortify. You're going, to, you're going to live in these places. I've already prepared it. Who prepared it? It was the Canaanites, right? They built all this power. So the Canaanites sort of had an upper hand. In this time, in this moment, the Canaanites had these great ironclad chariots, super strong, very powerful chariots. So Barak is, is nervous. He's like, oh, this army's way too strong. They're technologically further than us. They're, they're, uh, they're stronger than us in what they have and how they have it. So here's what God says. Okay, I'll send rain. He sends rain and the chariots can't move. Like, how cool, how cool is it? I mean, like, the, the awesome nature of God saying, your enemy seems like, ooh, that is huge, that's awesome. I'll give them a little bit of rain. And now they're frozen. They can't do anything anymore. That one thing that scared you so bad, I just had to send a little bit of rain, and it stopped them. Don't, don't, ever, un, don't ever shortchange God on his power and his creativity. Now, he could have done anything. He could have sent lightning and, and electrocuted everybody. Instead, he was like, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send rain, and they're all going to be stuck, and they're going to be sitting ducks. And what did Israel have a great strength of? Archers. So the archers were able to just pick them off. They weren't even moving targets. Like these archers are like, oh, we've been training for, okay, yep, he's not moving. Yeah, we'll make sure I'll get this guy in the shoulder first. Boo! I mean, it's, it's easy. It's simple because God says, I'm fighting your battle for you. I'm not asking you to go out and be a, a, a perfect marksman with these great iron chariots moving around. I'm, I'll send the rain and stop the chariots. Now it's a carnival game that the carnival game stopped. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been in one of those carnival games and like you're shooting the little things and they're moving around, they're impossible to hit? God's like, I'm going to send rain and just stop them all. Now have fun. Enjoy it. Enjoy the battle that I'm giving you. And I love how Deborah even tells Barak, she says, just so you know, because you're, because you're being kind of a wuss here, I'm going to tell you, God is going is to make, make this victory happen at the hand of a woman. That's what's going to happen. And then as, as the Canaanite armies are taken off and they're running away, uh, we see what happens. This woman, this wife of Haber, Haber uh, Jael, Jael drove a tent peg into the temple of the king, uh, Sisera. 
and now um, the the or the commander of the Canaanite army is now dead because this woman takes a tent peg, she follows the guy into his tent, and drives this thing through his brain like crazy, right? That's a crazy story. I can't believe that's even possible. How is this happening? It's God showing he's he's not going to be he's not going to be over outdone. He's not going to lose. God's not going to lose. He's going to keep delivering Israel. After this scene takes place, uh, there's, um, there's some, a song that, that uh, Deborah and Barak sing. It's this great moment in chapter 5. Then we see chapter 6. Um, this other group, the Midianites, oppress Israel. My goodness, Israel, what are you doing? Why do you keep allowing these cultures to overtake you? Why do you keep allowing the world to take you over? Well, part of it was because it was partial obedience in the first place. That's it. We're, we're blaming, because here's what happens. We, we get in these situations where we're oppressed by an enemy. God, why are you letting this happen to me? And God's like, well, me? I told you how to avoid this. Ugh. Mm, that one hurts. <laughs> I told you how to avoid this in the beginning. When I said wipe this out of your life, I meant wipe this out of your life. You didn't. Now you're being oppressed. Don't blame me for what you did. And God says, so now, and then they, people, oh, God, help us. They rebel. Oh, God, help us now. Please forgive us and send us a deliverer. And God's like, okay, I'll forgive you, and I'm going to send you another deliverer. This time, it's a guy named Gideon. Gideon had a lot of chapters in the book of Judges. His story, we know his story well. He was... Uh, <laughs> He, he, mighty man of valor. This guy was scared, and he was in the wrong place, it seemed like, at the wrong time. He was, uh, uh, then he was like, okay, God, I'll believe you as long as you do a couple of signs for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay this rug out here, and I want it to be soaking wet. And God's like, okay, ground's dry, this is wet. Okay, now we're going to do it again. I want it dry this time. We're going to do this again. We're gonna do this. At some point, if I'm God, I'm like, Man, I'm going, to, I'm going to guy number two, right? Gideon, you got any brothers or something I can see? Because you are, you are driving me crazy. The guy's allowing Gideon to grow his faith because he knew where Gideon was, right? One of the things I'm really thankful about God is he sees where we are and he's willing to grow our faith, help us grow our faith in our walk with him so that we can be used by him in a great, awesome way. Because I'll tell you this much. I, I shared that story early on about something that happened to me 15 years ago whenever I, had to, I felt the need to give a large sum of money um, uh, to me, a very, very large sum of money, to the Lord so that I could see Him provide. Do you know what that did? The next time God said, now, I want you to do this financially. You know what I said? Okay. Because I, I was at, he, he started me small, right? He started me small. And then He's growing me. Now I get to do things crazy. But like if I could go back to 15, 15 years ago and tell 25-year-old Anthony, hey, 25-year-old Anthony, one day when you're 40, guess what you're going to be able to do? You're going you're to do this. 25-year-old Anthony would have said, holy smokes, you're rich. You have more than $75 in your account right now. That is awesome. I cannot wait to have that kind of money flowing. You got like double that? What? Oh my goodness, mind blown. And, and the reason is because as we grow... God will allow us, if we're obedient in our small moments, He will allow us to grow our faith to where we can experience big things. Gideon, because I want you to think about this, Gideon's army, we know Gideon's army. His story is very, very well known, right? He took this big giant army, shrunk it down, there's 300 guys. Gideon's, Gideon was going to take out the Midianites. So, okay, Ehud got a sword, you know, uh, Shamgar got a stick. Uh, you know, each of these guys kind of got something that they got to go to war with. What did Gideon get? Well, Gideon had this lantern and a pitcher. That's what Gideon had. Okay, so this guy may have needed a little more faith, right? I mean, this, uh, you know, if I go into war and I got a lantern and a pitcher that I can take with me, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how this is going to defeat all the armies, right? I, this, there needs to be a lot of faith here. And then God said, well, you have too many people, so I'm going to shrink your people. Okay, okay, God, so there's, there's thousands of them and 300 of us, and you've given us some lanterns and some jars or pitchers that we can go and, and crack. That's, that's, that's our war plan. Okay, the faith ha it kept increasing in these stories. I'm like, how in the world is this happening? This guy who said, God says, I'm ready to, to you're, I'm going to raise you up. You're my man. 
I'm going to send you in. You're going to defeat the Midianites. It's going to be amazing. And Gideon's like, okay, first off, to make sure you're talking to me, I need a couple things to happen first. And then as he opens up, he just said, God says, now here's your, here's your uh, lantern and your pitcher. Here you go. Um, the, the battle, this battle specifically was unique because of the size of the armies and um, the portion of all that. Uh, that. It was just kind of a weird, a weird scenario, a weird scene. Um, but that's, uh, that's another way God provided a way out. And again, the way God did that, he made the enemy beat up itself. Like it just, and that's another thing. So you've got these battles that are going on where God's like, okay, this army looks really, really tough. I'm going to send some rain, and they're going to be super simple. And then you're going to get to just pick them off. It's going to be easy for you. Then this next one, God's like, okay, you don't even have to fight it. I'll make them fight themselves. That's what I'll do next. Like, that's how I'm going to do this. God just keeps showing himself more and more and more, his attributes and his strength and his power and his creativity. One of the things, I, as I read through the book of Judges, God's creative. Yes, he created all of the world and everything we see. We can go out and see all of his creation. But not only is he flexing with his creation, he's saying that enemy that's coming up against you, yes, it's your fault that they're still there. You didn't do what I said before, but I'm going to show you how creative I am, and we're going we're to defeat these guys in all kinds of crazy ways just so that you see that you can't put me in a box. Don't duplicate me over and over and over again. Whenever we get into one of the Chronicles, we're going to talk about how God is creative and uh, one, of the, one of the coolest things I've seen in Scripture about how God's never, God never says, just do what I did last time. Just do what you did last time and we'll be fine. God's always like, come to me fresh because I got a new word. I got a new thing we're going to do. God's always new and fresh. The next thing we see, the next judge we see um, in chapter number, we're moving over now a couple of chapters in chapter number nine, uh, we see this guy named Abimelech. Abimelech is a different cat. He is a different guy. Um, he is an arrogant guy. He is proud. He's born out of a sinful relationship. He's a, he's a product of polygamy. He's a, he's, he shouldn't be where he's at, um, just a trouble. And this guy is a bad dude. He is crazy bad. I mean, he killed like 70 of his own brothers. Okay, bad guy. Not the guy you want in your family. Abimelech, and he's, he's arrogant, prideful. He's going to try to set himself up as a king. He says, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the best of the best. I'm the greatest. I'm awesome. I'm amazing. I'm going to do this. And how does he die? Well, a woman threw a rock at him. That's what happened. That's how he ended up dying. Like, how amazing is that? So much so, on his deathbed, he asks the guy, he says, can you stab me, please? He's like, well, you're bleeding out, man. You ain't going to last much longer. He's like, please stab me. I don't want to be known as the guy that got killed by a woman. That's, that's how he was arrogant to the very, very end. And Abimelech was a, is an odd ball in this scene because there was a time where, I mean, God did a work through him. God did a work through each person and each thing. But even in, uh, and you say, well, I don't believe you. In chapter 9, verse number 53, I want to read the verse, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you how he dies. Um, let's see, where is this? 953. Um, it says, And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then, verse 54, I love it. Then he quickly called to the young man his armor bearer and said, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say a woman killed him. <laughs> That's like, how, how crazy is this? God's like, I don't, you, you, may have, you may have killed 70 of your brothers. I, you don't have the power here. You don't have the authority here. God says, I have the authority. I have the power. I'm going to make you die a humiliating death to you. And that's how it's going to happen. And he said, I'm just glad it made it in the scripture so we knew it. For the generations of generations, God's like, I'm going to make sure this one is in the Bible so that people know this is how this guy died. We see a couple of things happening next, uh, 22 years of peace and 23 years of peace uh, with the next two uh, small judges in there. that You don't hear a lot about their stories, but you see these, uh, these uh, Tola and Jr. Uh, that, that happened and these judges that arose. Uh, then you see uh, Jephthah, and he is a uh, Jephthah. Jephthah is an outcast. Uh, we see his story next in uh, chapter 11. And uh, we see, uh, obviously, before each of these, uh, I do want to remind you, before each of these judges, there is Israel rebelling, there is punishment, and then we get to repentance by the time we see another judge. So this, the people of God repenting again. And again, these are 22 years of peace, 23 years of peace during some of these judging periods. We see, uh, so just imagine 20 years ago, 
Um, going through the worst, most awful punishment from God you've ever been through, and then 20 years later, 22 years later, you're back in the same boat, right? There's a lot of ha- what happens in 20 years. Right? You, we, we, we think we know more. We think, oh, we know enough now. We don't need God anymore. We understand things now. And we find ourselves back in the same spot. So Jephthah was an outcast. Uh, he was actually born of a prostitute. And uh, in his family, his own brothers drove him out of the house. He was a, a, an outcast for sure. I love verse number 3 of chapter 11. Uh, just one of, the, one of the things I wanted to read. Um, because this, is a, uh, this, one, this one really allowed me to see another attribute of God. Listen to what it says in uh, chapter 11, verse number 3 of Judges. It says that uh, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and, a, and worthless fellows collected around him and went with him. A group of worthless fellows. That's the, if I'm in the Bible, that's the part I'm in, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, and then this group of like really worthless guys were in there. That word worthless men, the original uh, Hebrew language, uh, we translate it, it's a banking term. It means bankrupt men. People that just had nothing. This group, this, this judge, he, he drew outcasts because he was an outcast, right? You, 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 um, your tribe that you assemble around you are typically people that are like you, right? People that you are like, people that you say, we have these common interests, these common bonds. Jephthah says, I, I'm, I'm bankrupt, I'm an outcast, I got nothing. And so what's collected around him? A bunch of bankrupt men, a bunch of outcasts, a bunch of worthless men, as the scripture says. And here's what I love. Here's how God delivers the people of Israel now. So his family, Jephthah's family, he, they, they disown him, they reject him, right? They say, you don't, we don't want you in our family anymore. We are, we are rejecting you. And now, now in this place, Israel is having to call on the one that they rejected. Because Israel's in a spot where they can't get out again. They're being oppressed again. Oh no, we've got an enemy on us again. So who do we turn to? The one we rejected. The one that we called an out. The one we kicked out. We are now... So here's what happens now. Now I'm starting to see not only repentance comes from a, a place of humility, right? We, we know we get to a place. Part of the gospel, part of the reason the gospel is so offensive is because you, you hear you're not good enough. And that's humiliating to know I'm not good enough for something. If you ever hear, I'm not good enough to do this. I'm not good enough to make this happen. I'm not good enough to, to proceed in this way. That's a humiliating thought. It's humbling, right? So we, we know humility is important in God's world. We have to humble ourselves. Jesus came. He humbled himself, right? Became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We talked about that at Easter. Jesus humbled himself. Humility matters in the heart of God. So in this place, we know that repentance comes from humility. But this is where I love how the people of Israel are humbled so low they're not just calling out to God, they're also reaching for the one they rejected, for the one they said wasn't good enough, for the one they said, you aren't part of us. And now, here they are, please help us. Please help us. You and your worthless men, we are counting on you. How humiliating is that? How humi- That's the person you kicked out of your house, and then, then 20 years later, you're like, listen, about that. Sorry. Can you imagine whenever the, Joseph's brothers, remember that story? Joseph's brothers going and seeing him in Egypt and being like, oh man, the one we sold into slavery, now we're relying on you to live. Hey, ugh, my bad. You know, that was, that's on us. That's all on us, okay? We're sorry. This is the place Israel is at now. God is, is, is humiliating them and calling on this to deliver Israel, which is a pretty cool theme through it all. Um, we see a couple of, of battles happen in that, in that scene. Then you see the next couple of judges, uh, the Ib, Ib, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. These three judges uh, were all very short-time judges. We see them um, in uh, verse the end of chapter 12. 
uh, and they're all just in this real short section. And the reason is their, their time, their short, their time for judging was very short. Uh, one of them was seven years, one of them was ten years, and one of them was eight years. You know how I said, like, there's times of, of peace and times of season that were longer and times that were shorter. And these judges were a part of those shorter times. The people of Israel needed, they, they, they just, for, they kept forgetting. And they kept going back into disobedience. They kept rebelling. Then they kept asking for forgiveness. They realized that they were in the wrong place, repenting after the, after the, uh, the, the, the consequences of their disobedience. And then we see after these three, we see then Samson. Samson, we know his story well. I have some thoughts on Samson that, uh, you know, when I was a kid and I heard this story, all of the picture book Bibles and all of the, you know, the little videos and things was, you know, Samson, this big, giant, burly, beautiful, long-haired, strong, mus- just muscles on top of muscles, you know, look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson kind of, per- you know, big, giant, strong, all of these big muscles. But I always ask the question, if Samson had all those muscles... Why did everybody ask him where his strength came from? You know? So the more I thought it, the more I thought about it, Samson probably looked like me. Just with hair, obviously. I mean, that's, that's the one part that was different. Okay, I get it, I get it. But they probably were like, where does all your strength come from? Because you're not very big. <laughs> you don't have much to, you're not much to look at here, man. You know, because again, all of these judges, if you look back, they're all kind of weird, ordinary, like oddball kind of people. Samson, though, was one that through his story, we always talk about his failure, right? Always talk about his issue with the women, his issue with the, the women that he had. But here's the, here's the thing about Samson that is very important to note. The Holy Spirit is mentioned more about Samson than any of the other judges, than all the other judges combined. Sam, the Holy Spirit of God was on him, which is why I think that it's, it's, it's evident that he wasn't just some muscle-bound weightlifting. He didn't look like Charles, right? We all think he looked like Charles. Charles is in here. Everybody thinks, oh, he must be this giant, dead-lifting kind of guy, hero of the man. And so, yeah, Charles, that means I could whip you. That's what the Bible says. That's what I'm saying. Um, He wasn't this big... He was a guy who the Holy Spirit came on, and when the Holy Spirit came on, he could do miraculous things because it was God showing this is the Holy Spirit working, not a man working. Not some guy working. Now, he was also the only Nazarite. He took a Nazarite vow. He was a Nazarite, meaning he had certain things he couldn't do, certain things he made sure in his life that was um, uh, uh, abstaining from, which is important and valuable to know. Uh, and so Samson was just a, he was a unique individual. Uh, his, and, and part of the uniqueness of Samson, his, I mean, even if you read through his story, in chapter 13, it talks about whenever he was born. Didn't talk about when the other judges were born. His birth was kind of exceptional. His uh, his his lifestyle was exceptional. His his uh, uh, upbringing was exceptional. The way that that he was anointed was just exceptional. He was an exceptional guy, except for the time of that one girl, you know. And there was a time um, whenever my so my father's father uh, was a man who was uh, I, I just I was very young whenever he passed away. And I always heard he was this great guy. He was this great guy, great guy, great guy, great guy. Is if it, if it wasn't for alcohol. Like that statement kept coming in. He ended up taking his life, uh, committing suicide uh, in, a, in a drunken stupor. And I, I think every, every story my dad told, every story my grandmother told me, every story my uncle told me about, about my, my grandfather was he was, a, he was a strong man, his word was true, he was, he was that, that, I'm going to shake your hand, and my handshake means more than every notary you can imagine. You know, I, this, I, this is my contract, I am 100%, this is who I am. Great man, if it wasn't for alcohol. I kept hearing that. I, I, I hear Samson's story. Man, this guy could have been, was incredible, incredible, if it just wasn't for women. You know, and I began to think in my life, what would be my thing? Anthony could have soared to great... He could have been one of the greatest leaders in the, in the world if it wasn't for blank. What would be your blank? What would be that thing that just keeps holding you back? Because that's the thing I believe that God is telling us, all of us, completely destroy that. Completely abstain from that. Completely get rid of that. Because if you don't, it will eventually become what oppresses you. And it will eventually become what takes you out. 
See, God told the people of Israel, get rid of the Canaanites. Had they done that, this book would have been way different. Way different. Because that sinful corruption would not be there. And it leads us into this next scene in, in, the, in the books, chapter 17 through 21. It leads us into this place of Israel in corruption. Listen to what happens in the last couple of chapters of the book of Judges. As I look through this story, as I look through these, these history years of the people of Israel, these last couple of chapters really explain the spiritual temperature of the nation that's through the whole book. There's a guy named Micah uh, in chapter 17 who puts up an idol. He deliberately puts up an idol in his own home. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. I told you names matter, right? Micah's name means who is like Jehovah. Now, think about this. This guy, his name says, who is like Jehovah. He's got an idol put up in his home. This doesn't sound like the right path for him. This doesn't sound right. This sounds like corruption. Micah took a Levite. Listen to what happens. This one, this one blew my mind. Micah takes a Levite, who is a man who is called to be of the priestly line, the, the powerful line of God to be used in a, in a wonderful way. He takes a Levite. He pays him to be, a, a charge of this, to be in charge of this false religion in his home. Takes this Levite in. This is happening in chapters 17 and 18. And, and, and listen to what happens in chapter 18, verse number 30. I wanted to read this to you because this one blew my mind. Uh, chapter 18, verse number 30 says this. Um, uh, verse 30, let's see, it's right here. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of, of, uh, of Jerusham, the son of Moses, and his sons were the priests to the tribe until the day of captivity in the land. You know what happened? This is, this is how far Israel came. The grandson of Moses is now the priest to a false religion. Man, how far can we fall? The grandson of Moses. I want you, I want you to think about this. That's, how is that the case? How is it that this, this, this idolatry has creeped in so bad that even the great leader himself's family, this is all a family, Right? We could, we could trace it back. We've seen how this is all one big family. This nation is truly a family. And now here we are in this, in this idolatry, in this corruption. It's now, it's so deep within the family now, there's some major, major problems. It's all intertwined in the faith of the people of Israel. As I, I wrote down this last phrase, as the book of Judges wraps up, I wrote this, there's a man-oriented priest, not a God-oriented priest. There's wild parties, there's filthy acts. You would think this scene is taking place in Sodom rather than in Israel. Oh, how far we've fallen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not fall so far away that we miss your presence and your holiness. God, this book of Judges should be an, an eye-opening thing for us because the cycles of the faith family um, were not all healthy cycles. Sometimes they were rebellion, disobedience and punishment, then repentance and restoration. Why can't we just be restored and be happy with it? God, if there's any blanks in our life, this we would be, New Providence would be the shining, great news proclaiming powerhouse of a church if it wasn't for blank. What would our families, we would be great if it wasn't for blank. Let us remove those blanks out of our lives. Let us remove those Canaanites out of our lives. God, let us completely, totally complete the victory. I believe you called us to great things. Lord, I would not be here if I did not believe that you have a great plan in store. I would not be 
in this, I, I wouldn't lead my family if I didn't think you had something great in store for my family. God, as I, as I talked about last Sunday, I, I believe my, my kids, my daughters are going to be far greater than me. I'm praying for it. I'm doing my best to grow them and train them in a way that they would be far greater than me. Lord, do not let my grandkids be priests to a false religion. And don't let me be so naive that it couldn't happen to me. It happened to Moses. I mean, one of the great, great leaders of your people. I'm begging you, God, do not let my partial obedience early on, don't let that come back and haunt me. Allow me right now to say, I will be 100% obedient to you. Let me live my life in 100% obedience so that my family is not affected by my disobedience. Lord, I don't want any disobedience in my life because I don't want my family to be corrupted because of it. When I look at the history of Israel in this book alone, we go from victory and victory and victory in Joshua, primarily focused, to defeat and defeat and defeat, and we end in corruption in the book of Judges. Those last couple of chapters, God, they... they they're icky to me. I see these false priests. I see these wild, awful, filthy, nasty parties and, and issues and, and corruption coming in. And I think this can't be the story of Israel. Surely this is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely this is happening in a filthy Egypt or Assyria or Mesopotamia. And yet I see it's happening within the people of God. Father, let us not be so naive. Let us not fall into disobedience. Let us obey you 100% so that you are glorified and you are honored. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that this is not where this book ends. <laughs> this is not where the Bible ends. It's not where the story ends. You're sending a deliverer that will have a complete victory. We may fail we may be partially obedient. We may have issues and failures in our life, but we know from this page of this book that there is one coming that is a complete victor, that does not partially obey. We know Jesus obeyed 100% to the very point of death, and we know that he completed a victory. And we can live in that complete victory today. Thank you, God, for the beauty of the gospel that may bring us out of a little bit of a despairing book into hope that Jesus is enough and he does not lose. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for Jesus. It's in his name and his name only we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here today. Wow, look at that. I, I made up the time that we would have been singing. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, thank you for being here. Come back next week as we jump into the book of Ruth. It's going to be a good, good study next week.